chapters 38 and 39. Genesis chapter 38 and 39, as we make our way through Genesis, we've come to the story of Joseph. It's very interesting because last week we saw that Joseph's brothers sold him off into slavery, and Joseph, after being hauled off to Egypt to serve in Potiphar's house as his slave, the narrative jumps from the story of Joseph to a short story, a short story about Judah, the life of Judah and his sons. And it is not a flattering story about Judah and his sons at all. And if you'll recall from last week, the the original plan with Joseph and his coat of many colors were that they were going to murder him. But Judah was the one who had the big idea that instead of murdering him, which would gain them nothing, that they should sell him into slavery. So it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. If you recall, Reuben had hoped to rescue Joseph, but Judah and his brothers sold him into slavery to some Midianites. So Judah has not been so far framed as a very nice man. So Judah sells his brother into slavery, and as we look, his, his boys are not much better or perhaps worse than he is. In chapter 38, what happens is Judah's oldest son named Ur, it's a great name, Ur, so that's his name, and he marries a woman named Tamar. And all the Bible tells us about Ur is that he was wicked and God put him to death. So Judah's firstborn son, Ur, was wicked and God killed him. And so after Ur was put to death, it came upon his brother Onan to take his sister-in-law Tamar to be his own wife. It was a Levitical marriage. And so what happened was because Ur died without any uh, inheritors, without any sons, without any children, his brother Onan was supposed to take Tamar and the firstborn son would have been considered the son of Ur. But Onan did not want to jeopardize his own inheritance. He had seen how... Sometimes the younger is preferred over the older and things that had happened throughout their family. Something was on Onan's mind and he refused to do his duty. And the Bible says that Onan was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death too. So the first two sons of Judah, Judah who was the one who decided to sell Joseph into slavery, his first two boys were killed by God for being wicked. And so what Judah does then, he has a third son. And he decides that it must be Tamar's fault that all his boys keep dying. So he tells her, you go live in your father's house. And when my youngest son is old enough, I'll give him to you as a husband. And he can do uh, the job of the Levitical marriage. But he had no intention of doing that. So one day Judah's wife passes away. And he goes off after he was comforted, the Bible says. He's going to go shear some sheep. And while he's off to shear some sheep, Tamar hears that Judah is coming. And so she dresses herself as a prostitute and stands by the side of the road. And sure enough, Judah comes by and solicits her. And they agree that he's going to pay her some goats in order to sleep with her. Isn't this great? This is what you came to hear this morning about from the Word of God. This is the story of the people of God. And so he doesn't have a goat with him, and so he gives her her signet so that he says, look, I'm going to give you my signet, and when I come back this way, I will pay you the goat. Well, they do the deed. Later he comes back to pay her, and he can't find her. And he's like, oh, well, there goes that. 
Well, a few months later, word comes to him that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. And being the nice and kind man he is, he wants Tamar brought out so that she can be burned to death. This is... You know, we've talked about, in the Bible up to this point, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, we think about the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And every single thing we've seen about their lives thus far has been that they are dysfunctional, sinful people whom God continued to bless despite the fact that they were very sinful people. And that is the point of Genesis. We are not supposed to put people on a pedestal. We're supposed to put God on the pedestal. He is the reason that we have any grace and light and hope. It is not because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When John writes his gospel, and I think about that as I read this, John refers to himself in the gospel of John as the one, the disciple that Jesus loved, or in the Greek it can be translated, the disciple Jesus kept loving. These are the disciples that Jesus keeps loving. They are a messed up bunch. So he finds out Tamar's pregnant. He says, bring her out, let's burn her, because she's been being unfaithful. And she says, so I'll tell you what, the dad of this baby is the one to whom this signet ring belongs. And uh, Judah takes a look at it, and he says, oh, that's mine. (laughs) He says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. Let me me read it exactly. He says, "Uh, she is more in the right than I am since I did not give to her my, my son, Sheila. And he did not know her intimately again. So after that, it was it. The reason that Judah's line, as far as we know, did not go extinct was because of the the cunning of Tamar. So this is how Judah is behaving while Joseph is off in Egypt being a slave in Potiphar's house. And I ask the question, is God just? And the reason I want to ask this question is because when you look at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Judah, they're always sinning and doing terrible things, and God is constantly rescuing them from the things that they do. Now, they suffered for their sin. Surely, Jacob did. A lot of pain was brought on their house because of his sin, but Joseph doesn't do anything wrong. And every single time Joseph doesn't do anything wrong, he suffers not because he did wrong, but because others wrong him. So how can God keep blessing Judah while Joseph continues to languish in slavery and soon in prison. So let's read from chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, brought him from the Ishma- bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. And the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master, When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he had owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except for the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. She didn't beat around the bush, but he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, With me here, my master does not concern him with anything in this house. He has put all that he owns under my authority. No one is greater than I am in this house. He has withheld Nothing for me, 
except you. Because you are his wife. So how can I do this immense evil and how can I sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to him, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. And she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. When his master heard the story his wife told him, these are the things your slaves did to me, he was furious. He had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. There's a question that the psalmist asked that I would like you to ask yourself this morning. Maybe you've asked yourself this before, and it's a serious question. Those who are inside the faith will ask of us this question too, because it's a good one. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do those who do evil prosper? Why does Judah get to live his life after he sold his brother into slavery? Why does Potiphar's wife have no repercussion for the wickedness which she does against Joseph? Why is Joseph, who's always trusting in the Lord, suffering while men like Judah, while people like Potiphar's wife, who behave so badly, why do they get to prosper? Is, this, is God just? If you were Joseph, how would you feel about it? What would you think? See, we have the luxury of reading this from the Bible. And we see here that God was with him in everything that he did. But the question I want to ask you, do you think that Joseph knew that God was with him and that he was being dealt with fairly by the Lord? And I'll give you yet another spoiler alert in case you haven't. I think that Genesis is maybe expired from the spoiler alert uh, thing, but I'm going to tell you anyway. This is shocking. Joseph never does anything wrong, and we've seen how Judah has behaved. Through whom does God choose for the Messiah to come? Joseph's line or Judah's? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Why Judah? Why do those who do wicked prosper, while this man who has done nothing wrong continues to suffer you think that God would choose the obedient character, the good son. Joseph is a good son. I'm not just saying that. But he doesn't. He chooses Judah. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Jacob was just as wicked. He was a liar and a schemer. He stole his brother's birthright for a bowl of soup, and then he went in disguised and snatched also his birthright in that manner. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Why did God choose Isaac over Ishmael? Ishmael was the firstborn son, and God refused when Abraham prayed before him, oh, that Ishmael might live before you and not Isaac. And yet God chose Isaac. 
The answer to this is actually found in Romans chapter 8 and 9, if you want to read that. The Bible says that the reason that God chose Jacob over Esau is so that his purpose in election might stand. And here is the reason that God chooses whom he pleases. It's because it doesn't have anything to do with what we do. It has everything to do with the gracious God who does as he pleases and gives out his grace to whomever he wants. And he's done this to you. He's done this for you. Although we don't often admit it or even realize it. And what I mean by that is this. We may feel like God has shortchanged some of us in life, but he has not. He has given us grace upon grace. You have talents and gifts that others do not have. You get up in the morning, you're able to, some of you students, you're able to go to school. You may not be able to make A's as easily as others, but you can read. You get to go to school, others don't. Some people don't have the mental capacity to ever learn to read, and you do. Some of you have great gifts, wonderful gifts, and yet you look at the gifts that others have and wonder why God did not make you like them. God does as he pleases. He sprinkles his gifts and his kindness across the nations and across people, and he does as he pleases. But that's just one thing to think of while we read this chapter and think about the fact that the wicked prosper. There's a change in the narrative here. The change in the narrative here is that we've learned from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah that just because someone is simple does not mean that God will not bless them. And just because someone is good and right does not mean that they won't suffer for it. There is no prediction. And the reason that this is so important, the reason that I want to drive this home to us today is because we don't want to become like Job's comforters. Job was an innocent man. He was a man who was upstanding and righteous in his day. There was no one on earth like him, yet no one suffered like Job did. And his friends assumed that when he suffered, it was because God had turned his back on Job. And in fact, Job was the highlight of the entire generation in which he lived. And he demonstrated through his faithfulness that God was more to be loved and worshipped and in awe of than any earthly possession which we may have. So we don't know how someone's life is going, whether good or bad, whether or not they are enjoying the blessing of God or His displeasure. So don't make that judgment. We don't know how God's grace falls or how He will deal with us. Joseph goes into Potiphar's house and the Bible says that the Lord is with him. And everything that he does prospers. And in fact, he prospers Potiphar's house just because Joseph is there. And there is only one thing that is off limits to Joseph in all of the house, and that is Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife begs him day after day to violate the covenant of marriage. Every day, the Bible says. And if you look at Judah, he had no problem himself with uh, sexual immorality, but Joseph did not. He steadfastly refused. He had done no wrong. When we read here in uh, chapter 39 and think about the temptation of Joseph, I love what he says. He gives her an explanation as to why he's not going to do this in verse 8. It says, he refused. Look, with here, me here, my master is not concerned himself with anything in his house. He's put everything that he knows, uh, owns under my authority. No one in his house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how can I do this immense evil and sin against God? Sin against God. Joseph is alone in Egypt. He is exiled. He is handsome and he is vulnerable. 
And his master, Potiphar, doesn't pay very close attention to him or his wife, apparently. But he refuses to commit adultery with her. And what I love that he says is, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He does take seriously his duty to Potiphar, but above that, he takes seriously his God. Because when we commit adultery and when we commit sexual immorality, we are not just sinning against others, we are sinning against the commandment of God. Now, I could tell you a lot of ways in which sexual immorality can wreck and ruin you. But the point really is not just the pragmatics of whether or not sex and sexual immorality can mess you up. The point is that God says, do not do this. Now, there are reasons which God says these things, and there are reasons which we should honor the covenant of marriage. But the first reason is because the law of God and the will of God is external to us. We don't have to go through all of these uh, justifications for why this will be okay or why it's not okay. It's just this. God has said, don't do that. And we don't always know why God has said, don't do that. It is not because of the result. It is because of what he has said. And in the Old Testament, before the Old Covenant was superseded by the New, he gave him all kinds of commandments that didn't make much sense. Don't eat catfish. That doesn't make any sense. Catfish are good. But they could not eat them in the Old Testament because they didn't have scales. So just so you know, you could have gone to Gunnersville Lake under the Old Testament, caught yourself a nice carp, and you could have eaten it. But the catfish, you had to let go. And the men were not allowed to trim the sides of their hair. They had to have their tassels a certain way on their garments. They couldn't wear something that was made of 50-50. All of these things are stuff we can do now. So why did God tell them he couldn't do that? I'm wanting you to think about that. Was it because if they had mixed clothing on that somehow this was going to lead to their ruin? It would have if they disobeyed God. The point is, we're supposed to be obedient to God and ever thoughtful of Him, always thinking of God. We are to be a God-minded people. And when God says don't do something, or positively when He commands us to do something, we should do it because He said so. And that's enough. My mother used to say that to me. <laughs> My mother would tell me to do something, I would say, why? And her answer was, because I said so, and that's enough. Now, I did not believe that as a child, but now as a parent, I wholeheartedly hold to that. How can I do this thing and sin against God? How I wish the fear of the Lord would permeate our souls like it did Joseph's. He saw clearly that such an action would be a sin not only against Potiphar, but a sin against God himself. And husbands and wives, listen to me, and those of you who wish to be married someday. The fear of the Lord will keep your marriage intact when your own will cannot. How can I do such a thing and sin against God? When we gather together in holy matrimony, beloved, I'm talking like we're having a wedding today. I just saw one a couple weeks ago. We make a vow to each other before God that we will remain faithful until death do us part. And God takes that seriously. We also promise to have and to hold forsaking all others. Because marriage is not only just something that we do to fulfill ourselves sexually or to have a partner for when we get old. 
Because those things can also fail, even in marriage. We do this because the picture of our dedication and devotion to one another is a reflection of the love of Christ for His church. And when we violate this covenant, we give people a false picture of Jesus and His love for His church. And so, of course, Joseph says, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Because it is God that Joseph seeks to exalt above all others. It costs him. He already has lost his freedom in one way. But he loses it completely because of his refusal of violating the marriage covenant. And so Joseph fled from sexual immorality. And when he ran away, she got his garment. I, I don't know anybody in history whose clothes have gotten him in more trouble than Joseph because it was his coat of many colors that caused his brothers to be jealous of him in the first place. And they took his garment and shredded it and put animal blood on it and pretended like he'd been eaten by a wild beast. And then he goes into Potiphar's house and, and Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him. When he runs off, she keeps his garment and uses that as evidence against him too. Joseph, try to keep hold of your clothes. Sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul says this, flee, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Now what does that mean that they sin against their own body? Inside of marriage, it teaches us teaches us that when two people become husband and wife, that they become one flesh. And when the Bible teaches husbands to love their wives, that we are told to love them as we love our own body. And when we commit sexual immorality, we sin against our body, we sin against our wives, we sin against our husbands because we have become one. And this promise is not only after marriage but before. God means for us to be covenant keepers before he means for us to be lovers. Because until we learn to be covenant keepers, we can't understand what love is. It is single-hearted, pure devotion for love and grace. So Paul says to flee sexual immorality, we ought to run from it. I want to warn you, the snare... The snares of having extramarital affairs. Not only just with someone in the flesh, but also through internet pornography. The great horror and thief of our day. Stealer of innocence. I've warned you many times of this and I want to tell you again. What you see on the internet and what is reality are two different things. Men, when you look at women... In internet pornography, I want to tell you what happens. You begin to see your sisters as objects and not as people. Objects for the sating of lust and not for the love of the mind and the soul. And not only that, but when we look at pornography, we participate in some horrible, ungodly things. Yes, some people do that for money and it's all... Legit, and they're not being forced and coerced into it. But when you look at pornography, you do not even know if those people are of age, if they've consented to give those pictures or not. The sex, tra sex trafficking is real. And if you are addicted to internet pornography, it is almost certain that you have looked and oogled at women or men 
who have been put there enslaved against their own will and you pay for it. They pay for it. It is a great wickedness. And I don't live under any illusion that I I would dare say that any man in here over 15 has seen it. And the reason I would dare say it is because the statistics bear it out. And it's not just a problem with men. Women do it too. And the Lord God says that we should flee such sexual immorality. Not because He didn't create us to enjoy sex with our spouse, but because He desires our faithfulness to Him. Our heart belongs to God. And whatever He says goes. Not just because of the sheer force of commandment, because of our will to love Him and to trust Him. He is a good God. And if He says no, it's because of His great love for us. And if He says yes, it is also because of His great love for us. It is a sacred, beautiful thing, and it is real. Sexual immorality is poison. Flee from it. Just as Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. And boys and girls, if you have questions, you should ask your parents about it. Don't be ashamed. They know about it. They can help you. They can answer your questions, and they can tell you about what they've done right and what they've done wrong. And help you understand the beauty of holiness. Don't become enslaved. So there's Joseph running for his life as he should. Literally running for his life. The life of love of God. And what does it get him? She lies. And he goes to prison. And once again, the innocent is punished. And the guilty goes free. And it's not fair. The Bible is careful to tell us, as I mentioned before, that the Lord was with Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house. The Lord was with Joseph every day when he refused her advances. And he was with Joseph when he fled and left his garment. And he was with Joseph when Potiphar became enraged and threw him in jail. And he was with him the entire time. Now, Joseph might not have seen that. He might have had the overwhelming peace of God throughout. He may have been like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego as they stood before the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And Nebuchadnezzar said, if you won't bow, then no one will save you out of my hand. And what was their reply? God is able to save us out of our hand, your hand. But he might not. Nevertheless, we will not bow before your image, O great Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe Joseph had that sort of peace as he went to jail. And he thought, the Lord can deliver me from this. Nevertheless, I would not sin against him. Seems to be not fair. But the Lord was with him. And what we need to understand from the life of Joseph here, we're, aren't you glad Joseph didn't do that? I mean, you're here reading his story, cheering him on, even though he is in the midst of misery, separated from his family, living as a slave, and now going to prison. You know that his life is miserable, but you're with him. You feel for him. You're like, come on, Joseph. Good. He did the right thing. This is what he should have done. This is how we feel about it. 
And see, what we need to remember as the book of Hebrews teaches us that as you live your life and things happen to you that are not fair, that we are surrounded too by a great cloud of witnesses. And one day every deed that we have done will be revealed. And the sufferings which we have suffered for the sake of Christ will not be in vain. And that the Lord will reward us for the things which we have suffered in our innocence. And those which we have done in our guilt, if we cry out to Him, He will forgive us of those things. The innocent do suffer at the hands of the wicked. And Joseph is a picture for us of Jesus who himself suffered at the hands of the wicked, himself being innocent. The prophet Isaiah said that he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter who did not open his mouth. And when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, he didn't say a single word in his own defense. He had done nothing wrong. The only thing he ever said is when Potiphar says, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you or I have the power to let you go? And Jesus said, You don't have any power except what my Father has given to you. And so Joseph was placed in prison as an innocent man and Jesus was placed on trial as an innocent man. He was flogged and beaten and scourged as an innocent man. He went to the cross and died, was murdered by sinners as an innocent man so that he might save those who crucified him. There was a soldier at the foot of the cross who looked up after crucifying Jesus and said, Surely this man is the Son of God. And so the question is, why did the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper while the innocent go and be suffer for the act of the wicked? Well, for one reason, I'm glad that the wicked can prosper. Because if they couldn't, I would be doomed. Because when the Lord Jesus saved me, I was no better than Judah or any of his brothers. And the Lord in His great grace through His Son's death on Calvary saved my soul. And I promise you this. When, he, when I met Christ as a college student, if Jesus had not saved me that day, I most certainly would not be speaking to you now. I am eternally and overwhelmingly grateful for the grace of God towards the wicked. And even today... Even today I sin against the Lord. Sometimes in ways I don't even know. But God is gracious and kind and leads me to repentance. And he does the same for you. The Lord has suffered in his innocence so that the guilty might be spared. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is the great love of God for us. When we quote from John 3.16 and say, This is how God loved the world that he gave his only son. If we want to measure the love of God, then we see the sacrifice of His innocent Son so that the guilty might be saved. And Jesus did this willingly, suffered for us willingly so that He might save us and redeem us from our sin. This is the picture that Joseph gives to us. All the way from Genesis chapter 3.15, we learn that one was going to come to crush the head of Satan. And this is how he's going to do it, by being innocent like a lamb before the slaughter, fleeing from all sin so that we who have sin might be saved. Joseph here, we will see, will go from slavery to the prison. From the prison, he goes to the palace. <laughs> that will be your ark as well. If you will follow Christ with all of your heart.
God is good. And though Joseph may not have felt it, and though you may not feel it today, and I know that as many people are in here, people have sinned against you to hurt you very deeply. I know this for sure. And you have sinned and hurt others very deeply as well. But the beauty of the gospel is there's forgiveness for us all in Christ that we can be made new. And while there may be things that we, consequences we have for our sins here, in heaven we are forgiven. And we can live as free men and women because of the grace and the blood of Christ. So as we think about Joseph and we ask, is God just? He is more than just. He's gracious. People don't get what they deserve. Some people do in the end, but some sinners don't. And Jesus got what we deserve. And when we see that he got what we deserve, then something happens in our heart. And we're made free to love. So this morning, I want to tell you that God is not only just, he is gracious. And that he was with Joseph every second of the day. And listen to me. He's with you now. Right now, in this moment, Christ is near. And he will never leave or forsake you. He is kind and good. And he is gracious. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you will have mercy on us. And that, Lord, we will step back and see the larger picture that our lives tell a story of your goodness and kindness and graciousness to us. And that our lives can serve as examples of grace to others that they may see and believe that God is gracious and good. That when we suffer, even for doing what is right, that you can reveal yourself to others through our suffering because of our joy and because of our faith that is not able to be extinguished or quenched. And Father, this morning for those who are hurting, who are lost, 